In the last episode, I mentioned the 20th century mythologist Joseph Campbell and his description of the role of the father in traditional myths as being a monster, an obstacle or a challenger to the hero figure out on his quest or journey of life. I mention this because so many of us who are divorced fathers struggle to reconcile ourselves with the common experience of being rejected or ignored by our children. I've had a lot of messages of interest in both Joseph Campbell and his portrayal of the father as the monster since then, so in this episode I'll try to introduce you to his major contribution to Western sociology, what he called the monomyth, or hero's journey, in a book that he published in 1949 called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and which has served as a template for story writers and Hollywood film producers ever since. But before we begin, if you enjoy this content, please take a moment to support my work by making a small donation through the links on the podcast website, or better still, by signing up as a Patreon supporter, where you can communicate with me directly, engage with the Heroes and Legends community, and get better insights and even involvement in my work and future videos. A video montage of this podcast also appears on our YouTube channel. See the links in the description section. Please feel free to visit, like and share, and as always, thanks for listening. Heroes and Legends Documentary Channel. Not just the who, the and the where, but also the why. The Hero's Journey is the mythological representation of the challenges we all face in life, and the path that must be travelled to overcome them. But more important than that, it represents what he saw as the generic representation of the process of personal development as well as maturity that each person must undergo in order to become balanced, healthy members of society. This usually means dealing with repressed emotional issues, making difficult decisions, having the courage to suffer and accepting all of those consequences. Campbell was influenced in his wide study of religion and mythology by psychologists such as Freud and Jung, who often used dream analysis, myths and folk stories to illustrate their insights. Campbell once wrote, A myth is a public dream, and a dream is a private myth. Both Jung and Campbell believed that certain archetypical ideas were expressed collectively. In other words, they believed that we all have similar mental representations of subconscious phenomena. These phenomena are expressed in dreams and stories that intuitively seem to resonate with all people, despite their cultural backgrounds and personalities. It is something that is imprinted on our DNA, like the instinctive fear all newly hatched chicks have of a snake or snake-like object, despite never having seen one. The hero's journey is a myth found in all cultures that provides a framework or path to resolution of an unfolding life drama that we can all learn from and take comfort in. This is why Campbell called it the monomyth or the singular story that defines the human experience. The structure is comprised of three general phases, each with their own substages, and these are usually represented in a circular flow, symbolically, with the conscious world represented on top and the subconscious world below. The first phase is termed the departure. 
In this phase, the hero or protagonist lives in the ordinary, conscious world and receives a call to go on an adventure. He is reluctant to follow the call, but is helped by a mentor figure who offers guidance and protection. The second phase is termed the initiation. This phase begins with the hero then traversing the threshold into an unknown or special world where he faces tasks or trials alone or often with the assistance of helpers or other heroes. He eventually reaches the innermost cave or the crisis point of his adventure where he must undergo the ordeal where he overcomes the main obstacle or enemy undergoing a radical personal transformation and gaining his reward usually a treasure or elixir. The third phase is the return. Now the hero must return to the ordinary world with his reward. He may be reluctant to return or he may be pursued by the guardians of the special world or possibly forced to return by outside forces in order to share the treasure with his fellow man. In any case, he is no longer the same person he once was and has special abilities or insights that show him as being a master of both worlds. You probably already have a half dozen movies or so, stories or fairy tales that may come to mind, and that's no coincidence. Some authors, like J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, had an extensive knowledge of European myths and adopted the structure intuitively. George Lucas, who wrote Star Wars, studied Campbell's work and used it to enrich his own stories, just like the Wachowskis did with The Matrix. Virtually every screenwriter in Hollywood today employs some version of Campbell's monomyth structure, and most writing courses today refer extensively to it. Stories that veer from the formula just seem strange and unsatisfying. In Campbell's 1949 book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he first proposed the monomyth, the three phases are broken down into 17 subsections. Because it was quite an academic work, some recent authors have subsequently condensed and simplified Campbell's 17 stages into 12 or less, because some of the stages are alternatives to the same time point. But for the purposes of this video, we'll go into the original 17 and give a brief account of them and then try to make some sense of them with regards to personal development. Stage 1. The Call to Adventure Out of the Ordinary World In this stage, we see ourselves as living in a static, unchanging situation. We might think we are happy, content with the way we are, living in our own ignorance, living small, as some teachers might describe it. On the other hand, we may be bored, or even in a state of paralysis and yearning, but seeing no opportunities for a better life. Whatever the case, our world is small and we are unaware of our own unrealized potential. Something then happens to jolt us out of our normal lives. Someone appears, or a tragedy occurs, that acts to draw us out of our static world. We may become carried off by the winds of a catastrophe or innocently lured away from the path we are on by something that, seemingly random, catches our attention. Either way, we are called upon to make a decision to undertake the journey, referred to as the adventure, or to shrug it off and carry on the way we were. Stage 2. Refusal of the Call 
As is so often the case when we are confronted with a change or decisions, we refuse the call to adventure and remain trapped in the now shrinking and increasingly suffocating world we are in. Mind you, Campbell's use of the word adventure isn't intended to represent a holiday or a fun time, but rather to venture out or to step out into the unknown, or what we might today refer to as stepping out of our comfort zone. The refusal to do so can have many causes. Maybe we are kidding ourselves that we're just fine. But the myth tells us that once a seed has been planted, or a glimpse has been seen of another world, another possibility, it niggles at the back of our consciousness, making us feel increasingly doubtful about life as it is. Maybe the pain of the familiar is preferable to the pain of the unknown. But the call to adventure makes it increasingly uncomfortable to remain the way we are, once we know what is out there. All animals are programmed with an instinct of pain avoidance, which is at the heart of our emotions of fear. Campbell describes the outside realm as a far-off land, full of monsters, as well as superhuman deeds. A dark forest, full of danger, but within which is hidden El Dorado, or the City of Gold. It is always an unknown or mystical place, full of possibilities of opposites. Yet, having conceived of it, we typically keep trying to put off the adventure. We deny that we need to go, or we question our own worthiness or ability to participate. So often we use the excuses of duty or responsibility as justification for not undertaking the great task of personal transformation, because voluntarily getting out of our comfort zone is too confronting. On a journey such as this, we are forced to confront the weakness or the monsters that lie within ourselves. That's why we often need the aid, motivation or guidance of a mentor in the stage that is referred to as the arrival of supernatural aid in stage 3. Campbell says that such a figure represents the benign, protecting power of destiny, having responded to his own call and continuing to follow courageously as the consequences unfold, the hero finds all the forces of the unconscious at his side. Mother Nature herself supports the mighty task. The hero is given talismans, protective armour and advice to reassure him and help him on his way. We might see this today as a friend's support in tough times, the words of a teacher or mentor figure, or it may be in the form of writings from a sacred book, that comforts us during our darkest fears. Stage 4. Crossing the Threshold This is the point beyond which lies the great unknown. Once we enter, we cannot go back. We cannot undo our decision or backtrack. Like the knights of the round table on their quest, entering the dark forest at a point of their own choosing, or descending into the cave that leads to the centre of the earth, the forest envelops us, the cave seals over with a rockfall to ensure we can only move forward. Even Julius Caesar, standing on the banks of the Rubicon, full knowing the implications of his decision to cross with his army into Rome, declares, Alea yacta est, the die is cast. History mimics myth, or we might say that history illustrates myth. At this point, there is often a threshold guardian, who often represents the forces of parental or tribal limitations, warning of imminent danger, 
and usually discouraging us to take the action that might spell our doom, just like our parents or our society try to discourage us from taking actions that might cause us pain or upset the normal order of things. Better be safe than sorry. Curiosity killed the cat. Better the devil you know. Who do you think you are? There are countless clichés used to discourage someone from penetrating beyond the veil of the unknown. It represents the first conscious and courageous decision we make to break with the life we have lived up till now. Sometimes events overtake us and we stumble over the threshold, which represents the unconscious pushing us towards something we can't consciously comprehend or have maybe repressed. Sometimes the guardian demands a degree of prior knowledge, a key or a password that will see the way mystically open up, symbolically representing our admission by our own free will. Stage 5. The Belly of the Whale The belly of the whale represents the final separation from the hero's known world and old self, and a conscious decision to accept the consequences, which, at that point, seem to be one of disaster and death. But in mythical terms, this represents a symbolic death to your past life and a rebirth into a new one. So many religions and initiation rituals throughout history involve this motif of voluntary death and rebirth. Modern Freemasons especially continue to represent this kind of idea as part of their cycle of personal development. In the biblical story of Jonah and the whale, Jonah refuses God's command to preach in the city of Nineveh, and as he flees onto a ship, God whips up a storm. The sailors on board agree that a sacrifice must be made to placate the gods, and Jonah, knowing himself to be the cause of the storm, offers to be the sacrifice and is thrown into the sea by the sailors. But God rescues him by having a whale swallow him, and then over the ensuing three days, Jonah submits to God's plan with the whale safely regurgitating him on a beach, alive and well, but humbled by the experience. In our world, it might represent the collapsing social or economic consequences of declaring bankruptcy, declaring a divorce, or for that matter a new relationship objected to by your family. It might be the commitment to better health by disciplining your eating habits or addictions. It could be by making an independent career choice that sees you cut off from your parents' inheritance, or it could be the loss of status from a decision to go against the accepted norms of your culture, your profession, or cultural group. The three days it takes to process those changes and affirm them in your own mind are symbolic of the time it takes to accept and commit to your new destiny. It highlights the inner conflict of grappling with uncertainty. You have to die to your old self in order to make space for your new self. The whale represents the personification, you might say, of all that is in the unconscious. The creature in the water would be the dynamism of the unconscious, which is, is dangerous and powerful and has to be uh, controlled by consciousness. With this rebirth, the trial of your initiation may now begin. The hero now undergoes stage six, which Campbell called the Road of Trials. Much of the literature of the world and its folktales is comprised of this stage, where the hero is exposed to fabulous ideas and creatures of a dream world, 
and he is subjected to continuous challenges that he must overcome, by hook or by crook. Some he passes, others he might fail and be expected to learn from. My video on the Twelve Labours of Hercules talks about this in more detail. In a sense, the hero at this stage is being tested, often with riddles, such as the Sphinx would give to travellers, or like Theseus finding his way through the labyrinth of the Minotaur, or Perseus perhaps defeating Medusa. It is here that he needs to test his new skills and armour, such as the glowing sword, mithril armour, or using the force, sometimes unsuccessfully. The mentor, or new allies he has made on his quest, often have to bail the hero out because of his inexperience, hurry, taking on too much, or the tendency to wallow in self-pity during temporary setbacks. We might see this as the unwise attempt at trying to solve every challenge on your own, only to have our failures teach us that we need to rely on the help of our friends, mentors, or even to put our faith in divine providence. These trials are meant to teach us to keep learning, to keep trying, but also to look beyond our own skill set. All growth is painful, but we can't solve problems that are bigger than ourselves just by growing. We also need to use the talents of those already big enough to help us. It is meant to teach us humility in defeat, but also that defeats are not permanent. This stage is intended to build up our courage little by little and to encourage us to keep striving even when we fall short of the mark or don't live up to our own expectations. But they also quickly teach us the folly of getting cocky too soon and punishing us for our impatience or uninformed expectations. Campbell tells us these trials are only the beginning of the long and really perilous path of initiatory conquests and moments of illumination. Dragons have now to be slain, and surprising barriers passed, again, again and again. Meanwhile, there will be a multitude of preliminary victories, unsustainable ecstasies, and momentary glimpses of the wonderful land. The next stage, seven, is referred to as the meeting with the goddess. In mythological motifs, the goddess figure represents the ultimate life-affirming beauty, the ideal state of union with what we desire, or the ultimate reward. She is found in the deepest part of the temple, at the heart of chaos, in the eye of the storm. She represents hope, the ultimate good. She, typically a female form, represents life, abundance and growth. She gives us a clear glimpse of what we can achieve, out of the fog of the unknown, and the hero looks to her to receive a blessing or a sign that he is doing the right thing. We might say that this stage represents the clear visualization of the most important goals we are striving for in an ocean of possibilities, but more importantly, that we are worthy of those goals and that the goal is worthy of us. All of the skills we have learned up to this point, the scars we bear and the successes we have racked up are meaningless if our purpose is maligned. Another interpretation might be when we find ourselves in a situation that seems hopeless or one where we couldn't see a way out, we suddenly get an inspired vision of our happy ending. 
This gives us the courage and the certainty to keep going when we lose heart and we're able to visualize it every time we need to. Having gone through bankruptcies, divorce, major illness or a significant career change with the confusion and emotional disruption these involve, the goddess is a metaphor for the clarity of purpose that keeps us going. She might be the woman we've always dreamed about or the perfect business opportunity or that dream job offer that we would do anything to get. But instead of a vision of the ideal, she may instead, paradoxically, appear in stage 8 as the woman as temptress. These material rewards, pleasures or outcomes that we fantasize about can come in partial packages or trade-offs that can tempt us to stray off the path or mistakenly view them as the true reward, which is always only to know thyself, as the ancients might say, or in more modern words, to make the most of ourselves. The woman as temptress represents the material temptations or partial achievements that can seduce you into giving up. A better job offer or a higher pay might solve your most pressing problems. They may even give you some wished-for freedoms, but they may require you also to sacrifice your other dreams, your bigger dreams. A new lover may treat you like a king, but distract you or even discourage you from taking the risks or pursuing the necessary and solitary tasks needed to achieve your real mission in life. They say you should be careful what you wish for. Temptations of a soothing or lustful nature, intoxication, the hiding of a treasure from your companions, selling out the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver, the seduction of power by the devil in the wilderness, or to turn to the dark side, have all been widely used in our religions, literature and film culture. This is because of the powerful and often sinister view we have of the nature of temptation. The goddess represents life, but she also represents chaos. These two stages then are a test of character that come at us from the opposite direction of all the previous ones. They are not monsters, obstacles and chains, but rather sleep, intoxication and mirages that cause Samson's hair to be cut off and his power to vanish. These temptations are the sirens, medusas, serpent in the Garden of Eden and the magical spells of confusion that make us drop our guard and become vulnerable to our own undisciplined desires and fantasies. We might say that they are the parties, drugs, sex and other short-term gratifications that distract us from our true path. They may be the love bombs a narcissistic lover uses to deter you from leaving or the raise your boss gives you to keep you from quitting to start your own company. It takes all your strength to reject them and stay on the straight and narrow path and not confuse minor indulgences with real goals. If this has happened to you over and over, don't despair. Mythology is full of stories of heroes like Hercules who often made dumb decisions that cost him precious time and even the lives of his loved ones. Having rejected these temptations and pushing beyond them brings you to stage 9 of the journey, atonement with the Father. The hero is now worthy of facing and being initiated by whatever holds the ultimate power in his life. In many myths and stories, this is the father, 
a demon king or godlike figure who has power over life and death. This is the center point of the journey. All the previous steps have been moving into this place. All that follow will move out from it. This is the hero's showdown, his fight with the boss monster. In myths, he may defeat him or make a deal with him, in the case of the tyrannical underworld demon, or as Hercules did with Hades. Or the hero may earn his favour, in the case of the wise judge father in Navajo myth. The biblical story of Job is an example of a man who was tested beyond all conceivable limits, only to earn God's eventual respect and ultimate reward. The more contemporary image might be of Luke Skywalker defeating his own father Darth Vader and bringing him back to the Jedi side. Campbell gives us the Freudian explanation that the tyrannical father represents the antagonist and violator of our dream of being alone in childlike bliss with our mother. In more tangible terms, the father is the restrainer or spoiler of all our unruly infantile impulses and urges. Most tribal societies have a circumcision ritual or other pain endurance that must be undergone by a boy in his transition to manhood. To Campbell, this is the physical equivalent of the mythical journey. An immature boy undergoing a great and painful ordeal to be transformed into the kind of man his father is. It is the father's responsibility to wrest the boy away from the comforts of his mother and initiate him in understanding and surviving the brutal, cruel and often miserable place the world can seem to be. And through this, to become a warrior with all its attendant privileges and responsibilities. By voluntarily shouldering pain, you gain the right to join the ranks of other men in your tribe and all the honours that entails. In mythological terms, by shouldering the cross and a humiliating death to his old self, the son is raised to sit at the right hand of the father. In myths, the female principle is often represented as the giver of life, of hope and comfort. The male principle is represented as the giver of laws, judgment and the continuity of time. Law brings order and regularity and stability. Seeds can germinate and crops ripen only if the order of the cosmos remains stable. If it descends into chaos, death ensues. To be mature was to integrate both aspects into yourself. Many ancient religions had this kind of dualistic understanding of the forces that shape the world and all things within it. There was an understanding that pain, suffering and unhappiness were all a part of life and the hero must be appropriately prepared for them, otherwise he won't be able to bring order out of chaos. In Western alchemical philosophy, the father as wise judge challenges the hero to rise to be more than he thinks he can be, not through pandering to his ego, but through constant physical trial. He holds the hero accountable. All of the trials thus far in the hero's journey may have actually been orchestrated by the father as a series of challenges to build his character. And at the critical point of confrontation, the hero finally understands the purpose of his trials. His victory over the father monster 
shows he is ready, that he is a master. In psychological jargon, the monster is just the personification of his own innermost fears. That's why in myths, the monster often vanishes after being beaten. However, just like in the ceremony of circumcision, the hero is himself often wounded and will carry that scar as a reminder of his ordeal for the rest of his life. This is why veterans wear medals on their left breast as scars or reminders of the courage it took to overcome the darkness in our own souls. But in matriarchal cultures, the marginalised father figure is often portrayed as a unidimensional demonic tyrant. His placement of obstacles, riddles and challenges to the would-be hero, who thus far has lived in a world of comfort, indulgence and ignorance of the real world, are simplistically perceived as evil attempts to destroy him, rather than to build him up. Young people, now more than ever, need to understand the monomyth. In confronting and atoning with the father, the hero matures to the realisation that everything he has gone through had a higher purpose, and in doing so, he achieves a personal transformation that qualifies him to gather the promised treasure, or to drink the elixir of immortality. He comes to understand that he who chastises you is not necessarily your enemy. This is referred to as stage 10, or the apotheosis. It is the awareness of Neo that he is the one, or that Luke is the last Jedi. It is a stage of cosmic awareness that gives the hero a calmness and resolve to see life as it really is, not as our many filters have painted it to be. At this point, we are never the same again. We look different. People notice something special about us, a stillness we never had before. We can even seem aloof, like a master who operates on a level that looks magical to anyone watching. This is the point of enlightenment, where the Buddha touches the ground and claims that even the earth is his witness. A warrior becomes the ultimate fighter. A magician becomes a white wizard. Neo can see the matrix and becomes unbound by it. In some myths, the next stage, the ultimate boon, as just mentioned, is the apotheosis. The hero is taken into heaven or Mount Olympus and becomes a god or is placed into the constellations for all eternity. But in others, he takes the prize that is sometimes immortal food or drink or everlasting fame or the object that will revitalize his wasted homeland. This prize is often also guarded by a dragon or a keeper who is sometimes fierce and sometimes ethereal and can represent or warn of the inherently corruptive quality of the boon, especially if one is not vigilant. If the hero is not ready, has cheated to get there, or is imperfectly trained, he may need to steal the prize, all of which may lead to a curse, which will require another quest to set right later. Plenty of people have won money, only to squander it because they are unprepared to invest it wisely. King Midas got his wish for everything he touched to turn to gold, which quickly turned his life into a nightmare. Myths are full of the idea that you need to be constantly careful what you wish for. 
The guardian of the ultimate boon is sometimes synonymous with the father and sometimes not. The father monster may represent the hero's own personification of ultimate power, but this may not be the universal one. Luke Skywalker defeated his own father, but still needed to defeat Emperor Palpatine. In that story, the point of reconciliation, ultimate victory, and the boon was the turning of his father to the good side and himself killing Palpatine. This is an example of not only a reconciliation, but an alliance that follows the battle. Having achieved the objective of gaining the prize, destroying the ultimate evil, or psychologically, understanding our projection of evil onto someone else, we now move to the final phase of the cycle, which is the return, where the great prize is to be brought back to the realm of the ordinary world in order to renew the land, save the community back home, or restore balance in the cosmic order. This can happen in a number of ways and are not all necessarily experienced on the same cycle or story. One type of return, stage 12, describes a situation where the hero may refuse to return to the ordinary world. They may become so enraptured by the prize that they now refuse to go back, as we've already mentioned. Many myths end without a return, and we might interpret these as an admonition not to view the prize as the objective of the journey. Because the whole point of life is to share your talents and gifts for the welfare of others, a refusal to return usually itself leads to disaster or the hero becoming the next monster or a treasure guardian himself, who in many ways is trapped in their enchanted obsession with the treasure. Sometimes the gods or guardians voluntarily hand over the treasure and entrust, even push the reluctant hero, to go back to the outside world. But if the hero is flawed, as all of us inevitably are, the keepers of the treasure may not consider us worthy to take any more than just a small part of it, perhaps not enough even for what we needed, or they may not believe the outside world is ready to receive a treasure that demands the rigours of a quest to prepare for. Sometimes the keepers or gods are jealous that the gifts bestowed on lesser creatures would make them equal, or at least arrogantly believe that they were, such as happened with Zeus when Prometheus created mankind and gave them the gift of fire. So the hero may need to steal the treasure and escape. Many myths and stories relate the fantastical and even comical escape of the hero back to the outside world in an alternative stage 13 called the magic flight, where they often need to rely on the help of their allies or just sheer luck to make it back in one piece. This might suggest to us that just because we have achieved the pinnacle of success or mastery doesn't mean we are entirely independent of the participation of others in our lives. The return can be as dangerous as the road of trials and our new skills help us to scrape through, but the flight itself serves to remind us that we are still part of an interdependent whole and that, even now, we may need to rely on the aid of higher power, closer friends or just plain old risk-taking which is a fundamental aspect of being alive. It is interesting to note that heroes often travel with a sense of urgency, while the subconscious realm operates with a much slower, almost timeless rhythm. Perhaps there are lessons for us here too.
Another type of return is when the outside world may need to come and rescue the hero. As mentioned earlier, leaving the blissful state may be a trial too difficult to overcome, or in Campbell's words, society is jealous of those who remain away from it and will come knocking at the door, in what Campbell calls the rescue from without. Sometimes the hero himself tries to rescue a previously trapped hero he has come across, as Hercules rescued Theseus, or indeed Prometheus. However his departure occurs, the hero must now cross the threshold back into the ordinary world, in a stage that can be as daunting as the initial crossing into the mystical world. He must use his new mastery to reintegrate into a society that may look completely different to him now that he has had the veil lifted from his eyes. He may be disappointed with the small-mindedness or seeming unworthiness of his people, or they may treat him as a stranger, not recognizing him anymore. Personal growth can cause the alienation and resentment of people who were once close to you, and the challenge of the hero is to find a way to live with his new knowledge as he traverses back into the conscious or mundane world. Campbell writes, Many failures attest to the difficulties of this life-affirmative threshold. The first problem of the returning hero is to accept as real, after an experience of the soul-satisfying vision of fulfilment, the passing joys and sorrows, banalities and noisy obscenities of life. Why re-enter such a world? Why attempt to make plausible, or even interesting, to men and women consumed with passion, the experience of a transcendental bliss. As dreams that were momentous by night may seem simply silly in the light of day, so the poet and the prophet can discover themselves playing the idiot before a jury of sober eyes. The task now, having returned, is to use your mastery to live in both worlds in a balanced way, without corrupting the one or the other. This stage is referred to as mastery of both worlds. The ability to influence the progress of society without becoming an outcast or tyrant yourself. Hercules was a great hero to villagers all around Greece when he was busy killing the monsters that threatened their crops and livelihoods. But his temper and arrogance made them scared of him and they eventually came to fear and despise him. Nietzsche was to write that he who fights monsters should take care lest he himself becomes a monster. We might today think of those people who have achieved extraordinary wealth, fame and power only to become self-indulgent, selfish and heartless. Or alternatively, there are many so-called spiritual, artistic or creative people who are always sick, broke and entitled and expect the generosity and support of taxpayers, parents, or governments to keep them alive. The master makes it his business to make the world a better place for everyone, but not by shoving his opinions down their throat, railing or abusing their own celebrity status. A master of both worlds shares both their gifts and their warnings, like saints and prophets, but they let the world learn at its own pace. They have an acceptance of the natural flow of things and they work their talents within this current, often becoming mentors to new heroes out on their own quests.
We might call this Jesus' admonition to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is his. Campbell also tells us, The hero has freedom to pass back and forth across the world division, not contaminating the principles of the one with those of the other, yet permitting the mind to know the one by virtue of the other. And it's this freedom to live that marks the last stage on the hero's journey. In this stage, mastery of both worlds leads to freedom from the fear of death, which in turn is the freedom to live. This is sometimes referred to as living in the moment, neither anticipating the future nor regretting the past. In the master's world, there is space and sympathy for gods and demons, mortals and immortals, the weak and the strong, rational and emotional, masculine and feminine. Order returns to the world and peace to the individual. So there you have it, my take on Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. In a sense, I found it comforting that the severe trials I had been undergoing in my own life have always been a part of the human narrative all around the globe. There are a continuous number of choices to make in life, constant trials to undergo and lessons to be learned, and then, most importantly, shared. But the big lesson for me is that the journey is the prize, and perhaps the whole monomyth was best summed up by Winston Churchill at the darkest point of his own journey when he said, Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. If you enjoy this content, please take a moment to support my work by making a small donation through the links on the podcast website, or better still, by signing up as a Patreon supporter, where you can communicate with me directly, engage with the Heroes and Legends community, and get better insights and even involvement in my work and future videos. A video montage of this podcast also appears on our YouTube Heroes and Legends documentary channel. Please feel free to visit, like and share, and as always, thanks for listening.